This is uh, Paul Fischer with Allard uh, Robrook, who was uh, one of the speakers at our at our summer school. And Allard gave gave this this summary of an, of an incredible development, actually in 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 the deployment of of new and also pretty advanced tools in understanding these these large scale data sets that are becoming available, in particular through different forms of of imaging. Yep. So so why is this important? Why should we be doing this? So, so there's, there's two levels to that. So I think why should we be doing neuroimaging is what we can say first is that because of, it, it gives us a, an unprecedented view in vivo on the brain with whole brain coverage and high spatial resolution, especially with fMRI and with very high temporal resolution with EEG and MEG. So, I mean, so neuroimaging, I think, might be clear to some of the, uh, the listeners to the podcast. Um, but what we've also been learning with neuroimaging is that this huge amount, this huge bandwidth of data that comes our way out of the MRI machines, like gigabytes per, per minute, basically, many, many voxels, tens, hundreds of thousands of voxel time series uh, come out of it. We need a good way to understand that. We need a good way to model it. And just doing what some people have accusingly called uh, the new phrenology, just saying like, oh, neuroimaging tells us that this region lights up when you see faces and this region lights up when you do that, isn't good enough anymore. We need to understand this data in terms of network models, in terms of models that tell us which region does what, but also how it sends information on to other regions. And so that, that necessitates these complex models, that necessitates that you have a network model of what a task might do, how it's coupled to the neuroimaging data, because there is your neural network model at one level that had, might have an explanation of how the task works, but you need to couple that to your data, which is not mere normal uh, neural network activity. It's usually some kind of form of metabolics in fMRI and some form of synchronized uh, activity in EEG, uh, MEG. So you need to model all of that and then try to go in the reverse direction from the data to the neural activity. Uh, to do useful things, even more useful things with neuroimaging data than we have been doing. Right. Now, in, in this, what you call modeling, um, you, you distinguish two approaches, right? So on the one hand, you have, you have forward models, mm -hmm. um, or you have bottom-up models, and you have these top-down models. So what's exactly the distinction there? Right. So it's important to say that this this terminology is used and abused in many fields. So what I, what I try to do in the talk is to make clear that my definition is as follows. And it's used a bit a bit wider in, in, in cognitive neuroscience and computational neuroscience. So bottom-up models are first principle models, often biophysically inspired, of how a task is performed, um, how neurons fire, for instance, or how whole groups of neurons summarized in neuronal mass models um, generate their activity and pass activity on to other neural masses. Um, and then, for instance, how uh, cerebral blood flow, cerebral blood volume, um, deoxygenation levels, hemoglobin levels uh, change because of that. All of that you can simulate in the normal causal direction. So from neural activity to the changes in blood flow, blood volume and oxygenation to the fMRI signal. That would be bottom-up modeling or forward modeling. And that would be what, what uh, normal computational neuroscience does a lot, except maybe for also simulating the fMRI model, uh, the fMRI data. Uh, initially at least, but also lately uh, people got very interested in that. So the other type of modeling, top-down modeling, is inverse modeling. Uh, in, in the normal sense of the word is that because we go anti-causal, we go in the reverse direction, we go from the data that we have to what we're actually interested in, which is the neural activity in the brain. And of course for that we need to go in the 
inverse direction in the anti-causal direction, which means we have to invert all of those forward models uh, that we have built up from how our signal is generated. So that's a two type of modeling that I distinguished in that way. And I do realize that top-down and bottom-up is used differently in different fields. Sure. But now, do you would you recommend either of these two methods? Would you say, look, uh, top-down is more effective than bottom-up? No, no. What, what I would advocate in saying is that whereas nowadays still these are two largely disjoint fields, the computational neuroscientists do their bottom-up modeling and the cognitive neuroscientists and the neuroimagers are doing their top-down modeling uh, roughly independently. What we need to do is to, is to join these fields, to break the barrier between them and basically to work with models um, to work with bottom-up models which we can also invert. So the big challenge that we have ahead of us is to have basically models um, which, can, uh, which, which can do a few things. One is that they're biophysically inspired, so that's number one. That was always true for bottom-up models. Um, the second one is that they can actually uh, perform the task in the sense that they have a real computational implementation a real computational hypothesis about how a human or an animal performs a task. Uh, this was both was often true for bottom-up models. On the other hand, you had the uh, top-down models, which were largely able to invert observation models, like I just explained, but they largely were aimed at explaining neuroimaging data. So, for instance, when you do this top-down modeling, when you go from your fMRI data um, uh, down to the to hypothesize neuronal activity that you can see, um, to decide which of several competing hypotheses, which of several competing models was the best, the ultimate measure for top-down modelers is often how well does it fit my data. And of course, fit is not everything. I mean, fit with a, with a lot more parameters is not good, so often you would also add a complexity penalty there and look at something like model evidence, but still, in the end, what you're looking at is the fit to the neuroimaging data. So what I would like to see us do, and I think many people with me, is to join this and to work with models that not only fit the data um, as top-down modelers do, um, but also perform the task as bottom-up modelers do. So I would like to work with bottom-up computational models of tasks, which we can also invert and therefore make accountable to neuroimaging data. And that's an ultimate combination of three things mm -hmm. which has not been achieved yet. That's, that's a big challenge. But the way you describe this, doesn't this sound a bit like that, that you say, look, we have all these tools and now we have these amazing amazing methods to, to, to try to interpret the data in new mm -hmm. ways, but now we need to find an interpretation. So now I have to find the bottom-up modelers who look more to biophysics, the anatomy, and so on, to, 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 in, to help me interpret these, this abstract description that I'm trying to disentangle. So it's clear. It will be clear what your motivation is to find that link, because you need that translation step to work your way towards the neural substrate. But the modeler themselves might say, "Well, what's the leverage I get working now? Now finding, adding this layer of complexity, mm -hmm. inventing some sort of approximation of an fMRI signal. So I have to now model some some hemodynamical system that is again linked to my neural simulation just to make Allard happy. So why 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 would I do that as he's, a modeler? He's not he's not doing it to make me happy. He's doing it to make himself happy because." The basic problem that any bottom-up modeler has is that his approach is completely unde undetermined. So it's, it's a well-known fact that given some type of high-level behavioral data, let's say change blindness, or even some uh, high level of behavior, 
let's say exploration behavior, you can find an infinite set of models which could all generate that behavior. How to then decide which of those infinite sets of models is the true model? And supposedly that would be our motivation here, to find how a human or how a rat or how a monkey performs a certain task and to understand therefore how the brain of the human or the animal works. So in other words, if the bottom-up modeler works with very high-level behavioral data, he will always be under constraint. He can come up with any type of model and can always say, see, my model fits behavior. Yeah, sure, there's an infinite amount of other models that would also fit behavior, but mine happens to fit behavior. What else do you want from me? Well, that's not good enough, obviously. We need more data to constrain these models in order to decide not only uh, does it fit the behavioral data or the task itself, can it perform the task, but also does it perform it in the way that uh, the human brain or the mammal brain performs it. And there you need the extra data at the level of the actual neuronal activity, and that's the data that neuroimaging can provide us with. That's what, the, what, that's what the bottom-up modeler gets from it, from it. Well, the promise is great. Okay, so I agree with that. And indeed, this, this problem of determinacy or the indeterminacy of many models is, is very fundamental. And indeed, we have to find ways to add constraints to models to make them exactly. meaningful. And the neuroimaging data and is that constraint, the extra constraint. Well, th this is the issue we should inspect, right? Because you are then, in some sense, promising that the neuroimaging data is of some special quality because it's not just yet another data source. It seems, the way you describe it, that you say, it's a decisive data source. It's a data source of a very special quality. So what's that special quality? Why is it not yet another source of information like possibly gene expression or some second messenger system or behavior or what have you? Why? Good, what good makes question, it special? Good question. It's, um, it's, it's more gradual. I understand your question, but it's more gradual. I am not promising that is the, the decisive data set. Mm -hmm. What I am convinced of and I would like to convince the listeners of or my fellow modelers of is that it's, it's a set of data which, is of, which, which contains a lot of very important information that can constrain our models better. For the mere fact that what, what neuroimaging does, and that has always been its promise, and that is actually true, it does allow us to look inside the brain, which we weren't previously able to do with in vivo functioning humans without actually intervening into the system. That has been the, the promise of neuroimaging and fMRI in particular for 15 years now, and that is really true. Yes, we can look into the brain at some level of extraction. Of course, it's, it's hemodynamics, it's metabolics, but still, it's the metabolics which is much closer to the brain activity than the eye movements or the behavior which we would otherwise be observing, and we're still also observing that. Um, so it gives us a very important extra constraint which is much closer to the brain, to the actual neural activity, than what we had before. And that's the privileged status of the data. It's not perfect, but it's a lot better than what we had. That is true under certain circumstances. No, if I, in, in, for instance, if you would make your, if you would restrict your argument argument to, let's say, the human brain, it, it, it's fairly clear. No, because we don't have many alternative methods. Mm -hmm. But however, if we go to macaque or, or rodent or cat and so on, I could argue. Look, but then I have alternative physiological methods. I can I can deploy. Such as, let's I, name them. I can do my electrophysiology. Exactly. I can I can do much more detailed anatomical studies. I can do much Absolutely. more controlled behavioral studies. However, the paradigms I can deploy will, of course, be more restricted. But there's another very important restriction there, Paul, and that is that none of those methods that you mention now have whole brain coverage in an in vivo animal without doing any damage and therefore have repeatability. Electrophysiology is brilliant. I'm not I'm not I'm not you know against it. But even having a very dense multi-electrode array, which we can do nowadays, you only have a very sparse sampling of 
a couple of populations of neurons, and those neurons you can observe very well with nice spike sorting algorithms. You can get at every electrode a couple of tens or maybe even hundreds of neurons, but only tens or hundreds of neurons. Um, and then you have maybe a hundred or two hundred of those spots. But is, is that enough? I mean, we have millions, billions of neurons in the brain. So what, what electrophysiology is, what it's great at, is, it's, is that it's, it's one or even ten or a hundred huge magnifying glasses onto the activity of a few neurons that you can observe and you're ignorant of what, about what happens in the rest of the brain. And the beautiful complementary aspect of something like fMRI, which I would also perform on a monkey, is that it's the whole brain and all of the brain. And, of course, then what we have is the whole brain and all of the brain at a certain spatial resolution, which is much coarser than electrophysiology. Although with increasing field size and increasing MR technology, it's getting better and better and better. We're going towards the 100 micron level now for fMRI, uh, but it's the whole brain. And that is something unique that we didn't have before in any of the methods that you just mentioned. Granted, th th this, is, this is all very acceptable. However, the, the weakness of one method is not the strength of another method. Right. So, so for instance, in your case, you can say, well, I have whole brain. And, and granted, in principle, you extract data from the whole brain, but very often in the analysis, you see people suddenly starting to jump into what they call regions of interest because they say, well, otherwise I cannot extract any meaningful correlations from my data. So then to what extent do I actually really exploit still being this bottom-up modeler looking for mm -hmm. constraints, mm -hmm. to what extent am I actually really exploiting this advantage? Because here I go, I have indeed whole brain data at a fairly coarse spatial temporal resolution, but now, in order to make sense of this very noisy signal, I start to impose more restricted analysis yes. windows, so I throw away the whole brain information. So what am I left with? What's my advantage? Very good question, Paul. I actually recognize some of my slides in my talk this morning where I actually implicitly complained about this approach, where although we have whole brain data, um, what top-down modelers tend to do with their neuro neuroimaging data nowadays is to select a few uh, selected regions within it and only model the interactions between those regions. So I am strongly advocating that, yes, we should use the whole brain data. Um, not only should our models contain a computational model of the task, um, but also they should be accountable to the entire data set. They should preferably be models of the entire brain. So, yes, I, I fully agree there um, that sub-selecting data from this very rich whole brain data set that we have is not the right approach because it's actually not using the strength of the method. Um, so top-down models of neuroimaging data, and this is something I've been advocating in the last couple of years and I'm currently working on, should be models of the whole brain, at least of the whole cortex, preferably of the whole brain, and take into account at, of course, the level where we are with that particular modality, it should take into account all of the neuronal activity uh, that it's sampling. Okay, but then if I would if I would follow your advice, uh, then I would impose this this alert Rabuk filter on the literature. There are not very many papers I'm left with to constrain my model. Is that correct? No, but I'm giving you a a a, a vision onto a future. Uh, ah, okay. I'm giving you mm -hmm. what I feel that we should be working on, and I think quite a few people okay. agree with uh, with me that we are working on this and trying to get there. Okay, but then so th but that means that we actually agree that today, as the bottom up modeler. I'm sort of a bit left alone. I, I, I will not be able to find these constraints that I actually would need. No, they are there. And I would invite any bottom-up modeler to join uh, this research program and help us in achieving this and finding ways in which mm -hmm. your bottom-up models can be made accountable to neuroimaging mm -hmm. data. Yeah, but because that would help you. It would still not necessarily help the bottom-up Yes, it would model, help right? you because of the, the reason I said earlier. Because without it, you would have less constraint on your sure. bottom-up model. No, I got and that. Yeah, I got that point. But right. I was making a different point because 
your your whole brain requirement is excluding, as far as I understand this literature, a large chunk of the literature. So now it's bottom-up modeler of, of phenomenon X and structure Y. Mm -hmm. There are not that many studies I could look at today to help me constrain my model. Because it's not a model of the whole brain. Exactly, right? yeah. Right, yeah. You, you, you would agree with that contention? I would agree. I mean, yes, where, where of course, the, the issue gets more subtle, and, and, and this is an issue you always have in modeling, and that will remain there also in this... Uh, new program of, of, of doing things, of combining things, is that a model always needs to be a model at a certain level of abstraction. Um, often they say all models are wrong, but some are useful, is a famous famous thing to say. Um, and some the, the ones that are useful are the ones that take a suitable abstraction level and a suitable set of the data to model and to try and understand that part. And that will always remain true. A useful model is one that includes all the relevant areas for your task and has a nice computational model for those areas. And of course, although I would advocate that you would not forget any of the important areas for your task, that you would not constrain your model a priori to be, uh, to contain two or three regions in the brain where you know or expect or are afraid that there might be two or three or four or five other regions in the brain, um, that it contains only those two or three that you a priori started with. Once you do have all the regions which you reasonably believe to be involved in the task, the six or seven, let's say, then of course, sure, focus on the six or seven that are relevant. If the rest of the brain really isn't relevant, I won't force you to model it because that's not a useful abstraction. That's not a useful model then. Right. So now, okay, so here we go. So, so we're looking through this, this, this future where we have this whole, whole brain fMRI data interpreted in some, let's say, connectivity scheme, uh, I guess. Um, but now, from the modeling perspective, what I'm actually trying to replicate is the causal structure of the phenomenon. I really try to think about how neurons interact with each other and A causing B and so on, leading to some macroscopic phenomenon I could call behavior. But in some sense, if I, if I, if I look at, at the methods you're, you're, you're developing with your colleagues, we very quickly end up not talking about connectivity, but about a special kind of connectivity, which is functional connectivity, which in some sense is, is related to a, a correlation structure. And as we all know, well, going back to Hume and, and before, correlation is only a necessary condition of causation. And as a constraint, I would like to have access to causal information. So, mm -hmm. so, so how are we going to solve this conundrum? So that means on the one hand, the whole brain data I still don't have. But now if we have it, imagine we have it, mm -hmm. then I want to know, I want to have causal information. But actually, if I understand what, what, what you were telling us, today, this is really difficult to get your hands on. So what's our problem there? But first, we're missing something. Huh. We don't all only want causal information. We also want computational information. Let me explain what I, what I mean here. We know that activity in V2 is caused by activity in V1. And that's an important fact to know. But it's, that doesn't actually explain to us or give us any understanding about what V1 and V2 do exactly. Do we really know that? Let's assume for now that we that we know that. Ah, okay. Mm -hmm. Right? I, I tried to give an example. Sure, yes. We I was can, not facetious. Actually, I, I was serious. Yeah, yeah. So actually, we, we, we actually believe that there might also be a recurrent information for structure instance. there. But that already goes towards a more computational model of what they're doing. So a causal model, which I agree many of the top-down models of neuroimaging data have focused on, are perfectly content in saying that, okay, if I can get with my top-down modeling, with my inversion of complex observation models to a model which says that information is going from V1 
to V2, and also, by the way, from V2 back to V1, and then on to V3, V4, and so on, then they're happy and to stop there and say, okay, I've, I've, I have just distinguished by fitting to my data the model where there's a recurrent information flow between V1 and V2, and just a feed-forward V1 to V2, but nothing else. Um, that would be a causal inference that you just spoke about. On top of that, we also need a computational inference. We actually want to know what is it that V1 does with its input. What is it computing, right? And then, what is it computing that it sends on to V2, and what would v V2 supposedly be computing, which it either exclusively sent on to, to V3, V4, or which it would actually recurrently feed back to V1. So that's on top of the causal inference of saying that some type of information, and we don't know what, moves from V1 to V2, is actually having a computational model of direction-specific cells, of, you know, columns, orientation columns, color blobs, things like that, gives us a much finer understanding. So that's what I mean when I say that computational bottom-up models have to be integrated and made accountable to neuroimaging data. But now I'm confused in some sense because I, I feel that so so I think we, we had a good agreement on on imposing constraints on these models and mm -hmm. that whatever set of constraints we can find we should we should use them in that sense in the right. imaging so, data. So you now do you now agree that you'll you'll use neuroimaging data not for Allard but actually for yourself? No, I don't agree to the imaging right. data yet. All right, I, I agree to the general principle. All right, that's which, good. which we already adhere to for many years. All right, um, but but. And then we then your argument was to say, and fMRI data is one of the sources of information constraints that you can impose in your model. Then I made this argument about actually modeling causal structures, right? Mm -hmm. And I said, but the way you guys analyze this imaging data doesn't give me access to causal structure. So how then can it be a constraint that is in any way decisive for me? Because what I want to understand is the causal uh, the causal links in this network. But then in answering, so I had expected you would say something, oh, but actually we do have access to causality. We have methods to try to infer causal structure right. so we can strengthen it. But then actually you made a jump and you went to something that's called computation, which is not necessarily well defined. Mm -hmm. um, True. So, so and, and then suddenly that was as, as if the, the imaging data would give me a sense of some functional property that I could then use as my constraint. So you seem to sidestep that issue of causality, All right. and now you seem to tell me, no, actually it's not about causality, but I can tell you something about the functional operations that happen in that structure. So so now I'm confused, me, because what are you offering to me, really? Right, right. So let's let's take it in a few steps, and it is about causality. It is about causality. Um, and maybe I jumped over that too fast, because I'm eager to move on, but causality is important. So it is important to know, before we know anything, that there might be causality, which is, by the way, also notoriously ill-defined, just like computation is, but let's suppose we have some relevant intuitive understanding of what it means. It is relevant to know that there is causality from V1 to V2. Supposedly we didn't know anything about the brain, knowing that teaches us something, and it teaches us something useful. I then quickly moved on to say, but we want to know more. But let's, let's, mm -hmm. let's actually, okay. right, and that was my argument just now, but I mm -hmm. understand your question like, oh, you're moving too fast, let's look at causality first. Mm -hmm. So yes, okay, uh, since Hume and since, you know, uh, what many uh, first-year psychology students know is that from correlations alone, which is in principle what we have and what we can observe and compute from our neuroimaging data, we don't have causality. Causality is basically correlations plus additional assumptions. 
Um, and the question is, of course, what are those assumptions? And if those assumptions are good assumptions, we might actually get to causality, to some form of causality derived from correlations to some observational causality rather than a perturbational causality, which would be actually intervening to the system. I'm just leaving that aside for now. But a useful form of causality. But those assumptions are really important. Which assumptions do we put into our models which allow us to go from correlations and also higher forms of dependence uh, to causality? Well, that's where we actually also get back to computation in the end, because computational models would be one of the forms of very fine, um, uh, very detailed assumptions that would have us go from correlations to causations. But already before that, once again, that's the next step. I don't want to overstep the point of causality that you were making. Um, yes, already when we're doing pure top-down modeling as it's applied today, going from our neuroimaging data to causality, to influence at the neuronal level, it's all the assumptions which are in the model, the assumptions which are in what we call the neurodynamic model. How do we actually model interacting neuronal populations? What does that look like? Um, and in the uh, observation model that takes our neuronal population activity to our observations, which would be a model of hemodynamics for fMRI and the models of, of, of leak fields and gain matrices in EEG or MEG. That contains all of those assumptions, which combined with our data can tell us something about causality. Yeah, so one, one reason why I like to, to stick a little bit to this causality issue is also if you jump to what we could call computation, it's also an excuse in some sense to start to, to discard constraints. Because if you say, oh, let's just worry about the computation, and something, in some sense, anything that happens in space and time, you're going to discard. Because you say, no, now I move from a physical space to a functional space. And before we make that jump, I think it would be useful to understand what, what possibilities do you have right now in your toolbox to make statements about causal interactions in this kind of, of imaging data that you have access to? How, how is this really done? All right. Um, so there, there's a couple of ways in which you can operationally define causality. And that's actually where we now have to press for a definition of causality, which, as I said, is notoriously ill-defined. So there's a couple of possible definitions. I just mentioned the perturbational approach. Some philosophers would um, uh, insist, actually, that the only way to get to causality is to perform experiments where you actively disturb the system and see what the consequences are. I can agree with that. It's the foundation of empirical science. Exactly, it? yes. But also, immediately, um, with a interactive functioning system and a complex system like the brain, it also presents you with problems, um, which you could actually at a quite abstract, vague level, uh, compared to the uncertainty principle. By observing the system and by perturbing the system, you are disturbing the system. So by perturbing the system, you are actually looking at an unnaturally functioning system. By using, for instance, something like transcranial magnetic stimulation, where you give a quite a blast of magnetic a pulse into the brain, which then induces uh, uh, electric currents in the uh, brain tissue, you're doing something completely unnatural to the brain, because that are not the, the usual microvolt currents which are functionally normal to run in the brain. Basically what you're doing is, if, if, if a nice analogy is, if, if an alien would come from outer space and we're trying to understand what our cars are like, supposedly if they came from outer space they have much more advanced technology than that, but still, let's suppose that they see one of our cars and want to make sense of it, the, the correlational approach that I was advocating before would be to have the engine run and measure temperatures here and there and actually seeing that when the temperature goes up in one place, it also tends to go up in the other place. So actually these things might have something to do with each other. But we need more assumptions to understand what it is that they do to each other, which is what we were discussing before. The perturbational approach 
um, here would be, and to drive my point home, taking a big sledgehammer, giving a big knock onto one part of the engine, seeing what shakes, basically, and deciding that what shakes must be functionally connected to where I knocked the engine. Now, this point drives the point home that this might not actually be how an engine works, and that if I knock an engine, I, um, I, 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 I perturb the engine in such a way that the, the shaking that goes on then, you know, the perturbations, the consequences of it, yes, they are most definitely and utterly causal, but are they actually the important causal uh, things that make the engine work? I don't think so. I understand the distinction. I could argue, though, that, that in some sense you're setting up a straw man, no? because I could argue, well, to understand how this engine works, I could do a more subtle perturbation. I could just, take, let's say, take out one of the spark plugs and see what happens For to instance, the power yes. output. I and once again, it wouldn't there. be the normal function of the engine to start with, in a subtle way, but it's still the same argument. I could, but I could have more. I could have more subtle perturbations on the system. Even more subtle. How, and then, how subtle do I, would I they have to be? Change the air mixture, and then yeah. you know, the carburant I'm, I'm injecting, and so on. But I, I'm not sure if, if 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 this is completely fair because, effectively, on your human subject that you try to decompose functionally. You also perform small perturbations. That's your experimental protocol. Exactly. Right? And importantly, so, these, so are natural, sense, these are natural perturbations. Well, these no. are the perturbations well, that I would advocate using are to provide you as a subject with a perturbation into your visual field, for instance, flashing a face picture at you, which you would then have to perceive as being a face and to decide whether this is the face of your neighbor or not. Of course, that then causes things to happen in your brain, but natural things as you would naturally function. And that's the important distinction here. Indeed. But as you know, also the first year psychology student will be told about the problem of ecological validity. Mm -hmm. And and your subject in the scanner looking at, at all sorts of pictures is also not necessarily exposed to a natural situation. So that seems that you're saying, well, uh, some perturbations are more natural than others. So and that's but, what but I'm saying. Can, I'm saying it's a continuity. It's mm -hmm. a continuity. Mm -hmm. So I would say that an active perturbation in the form of TMS is highly uh, non-natural. I would also say that flashing a face picture for 100 milliseconds to one of my subjects is more natural because it's the natural channel of input into my brain. That's at least better than what I did with TMS. By the way, I'm, I'm, I'm sounding negative about TMS. I think TMS is a great method. I think the podcast, the, the, the podcast listeners should know that. Uh, I'm just trying to contrast uh, two concepts here, and that's why I'm... I'm, I'm beating sure. at TMS here. No, I so, so, so at least the, the, the perturbation is coming in through the natural channels that my brain is used to receive information through. But of course, in the natural world, I'm not being, I'm, I'm, I'm not having fla faces flash to me. Rather, I have a dynamic stimulus array that is continually changing. So an already more natural stimulus would be to look at a movie and being able to fixate around. And an even more natural stimulus after that might be actually to actively explore my environment. And there's a whole conti con uh, continuous array which indeed explores the trade-off between having ecologically valid and natural stimuli on one side and having controllability upon the other. Where controllable stimulus, where we keep everything constant and have no confounds and vary one thing so that we know what we're actually doing, is often highly unnatural and highly non-ecological. But very ecological experiments showing movies expo active exploration are highly non-controlled, so there are many things changing at the same time. So anything we observe, what is it really due to? And in designing experiments on this con continuum and finding places in the middle, useful places in the middle, is actually where we might learn a lot. So if I if I got it right, 
that means that this, this contrast you seem to sketch between associative methods and perturbation-based methods is less of a contrast because in some sense you're saying we might want to do both, but you just want to absolutely. be careful with the perturbations we consider. Absolutely. Yeah? This that's, is, so this is yes. the bottom line of it. It's absolutely. not necessarily one or the other. That's that's a beautiful conclusion, Paul, because that shows that I'm definitely not I'm not against TMS. I'm just saying that... You just didn't know it yet. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I definitely... <laughs> I'm getting a new view onto it within our discussion, but no, that's exactly what I what I would like to stress is that these are very complementary methods, which are not only uh, black and white, but they are a whole grad gradation from white to gray to black that we should explore and use in a complementary way, and also especially in the in-between levels. Right, very good. So there's one one thing though that, that that worries me a bit. So it, it's very it's clear that, that that you master these these methods and techniques. Right, so so you know what you're doing, but in some sense, a lot of these tools are also used by people who have not spent all this time training on the details of them, and you know you you provide them with a data set, and some numbers will, will will come out. How can we make sure that the tool is not overpowering the users? That we can really, and of course, it's important that the large community of of users can make can make use of these tools. But mm -hmm. you don't want them all to call you all the time to ask you for advice what they really should be doing. So how can we make sure that while the complexity of the tools is increasing, we can still, as a community, make effective use of them? That's that's a complex question because essentially, yes. So with um, increasing power of the tools, often they need to become increasingly complex and they are increasingly more difficult to understand. They become often increasingly more uh, statistically and mathematically technical. And a cognitive psychologist or a cognitive neuroscientist of course has a legitimate claim to want to use these methods because they were actually designed for her. Um, but then we're, we're of course uh, presented with the, um, the conundrum that you just sketched that um, a researcher has to understand things about mathematics and things about statistics and things about dynamic systems and system identification that she wasn't trained to do. So yes, the, the conundrum here is that obviously the responsibility always lies with the researcher. You as a researcher are always responsible for the experiments that you do and you are, uh, as a researcher are always responsible for understanding the methods that you use to such a degree that you wouldn't do anything foolish. And to such a degree is where it gets subtle. Uh, it's your responsibility that if you feel kind of iffy about some part of your analysis where you weren't actually sure that this actually is the right thing to do, uh, but it gave you beautiful data that you would actually like to submit to Nurture Neuroscience, that you would call me then at that moment and ask me or anyone else that's that's much smarter still and ask them, like, I use your method, can I really do this because I'm getting beautiful data, but is this actually allowed? Should I do it this way? That's your own responsibility and that's what you should do. Um, and then, of course, even though uh, you're responsible for understanding the methods that you use, it's also perfectly natural that you can only understand them to such a level. With the increasing complexity, especially in neuroimaging, where physics is involved for the MRI machine, which is a highly physically theoretic machine, has, has to do with static fields, gradient fields, RF fields, um, where then statistics is involved, mathematics is involved, neuroanatomy is involved, psychology is involved. It's a very um, 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 uh, multidimensional uh, field. Um, there's there's many expertises involved and naturally you would only be an expert in one or two of those and you would only want to know the, ne the, the necessary thing about the other fields. Yes, that's definitely true and that's an increasing challenge actually for, for neuroimaging, neuroscience and also neuromodelers to try and figure that out, to form consortiums in fact of researchers which can maybe help each other doing that in the right way. Correct. 
So, but then would you claim that 100% of the users of these tools satisfy these constraints you just spelled out? I wouldn't know. I wouldn't claim to have insight into who is using these tools. I don't have control over that. But you see the, the, the papers that are being written with them, no? Yeah, and there are many fantastic papers, which mm -hmm. I admire and love, and there's some papers that I'm highly skeptical about and that I think shouldn't have been performed in that way. Yeah. So should we improve our standards, do you think? Or you, you feel that, that things Improving standards is always better. The question is how to do that. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm completely for improving standards. Uh, so, so the question then would become one, which is highly interesting, by the way, with the, with the exploding amounts of journals in fields of neuroscience, computational neuroscience, cognitive neuroscience, neuroimaging, and the, the exponential explosion of papers ap appearing in these journals every week. Actually, Partha Mithra was, was, was discussing this today in his talk. How daunting that is. How do we control that? Yeah, how do we keep up a standard like that? Uh, that's something that, uh, it's a nice side issue that we could discuss for three quarters of an hour more. Maybe we do that in another podcast. But that, yeah, that's one of the challenges of, of, of science in general. Uh, certainly a field like neuroscience that, that has exploded in volume over the, over the last 20 to 30 years. Correct. So now if you, if you had to <coughs> convince people to use your method, what, what is this the convincing test case that, that, you, that you would put forward where you say, look, there was this, this problem, this question that we could not answer before, but now we really gained fundamental insight in how the brain operates because of the data that we have access to, the imaging data, and the tools that we have developed to analyze it. What, what would be the... This would be hypothetical or already happened? Or? No, no, it should have been published now. Should have been published now? Yeah, it should have already been in literature. What's the key thing you would point to? All right, good question. There's a few very good studies. Just give me one. I'm going to try not to name my own study. That's, that's very <laughs> no, self-indulgent. So let's not do that. <laughs> let's not do that. Um, th th there was a couple of interesting things discussed. So let's actually take another talk in the, in the symposium over here. Maybe you've done a podcast with uh, Melanie Bully, um, who showed very interestingly, using the dynamic causal modeling framework, how she could distinguish between... Um, models where certain f merely uh, feed-forward processing was taking place or fully recurrent processing were taking place, which supposedly can be one of the substrates of consciousness in the brain uh, and therefore could test these models against each other. One model where there's merely feed-forward processing going on and leading to some fit to the MEG data, in that case EEG data, um, and the one where there is recurrent processing taking place. Um, and the models that I advocate, the top-down models alone, could already distinguish between these two models and tell you that one fits the data much better than the other. And that therefore, supposedly, we can answer questions about consciousness, one of the most, you know, the biggest challenges that we have to face. Um, so that already, I think, is convincing. Um, and when we can take these models even further, like we've been discussing here at all, then maybe we can do even more than that. It's going to be fantastic. It's <laughs> going to be fantastic. <laughs> Very good. So now, now to, to, to conclude... Um, so you're sort of coming up in this field. You're, you're one of the rising stars. Um, clearly in charge of what you do. You know what you're doing. So what's, what's the law of, of Allard Rabruck that we should follow in order to, to make advances in our science? What, what's the law that you want to put out there for the us law. to adhere to? Yeah, the law, the law of Allard. Allard's oh, wow. law. I need a law. I didn't have a law yet. What will it be? So this I have is to your make chance. up a law now. Yep. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. But it, a law. It, but it can be can be one about the brain. It can be one of of, of the methods we follow. The, the 
the rules of behavior we adhere to as scientists, you can choose. You're free. All right. What's Ellis so that, law? There's one law, mm -hmm. which in my own studies, my master science studies and, uh, and my PhD studies, I've always loved. And it's not a law about the brain, but let me state that law and see if we can make it into other. The law that I've always loved is Hofstadter's law. And Hofstadter's law is about uh, uh, how painful it can be to program something, how precise you have to be, how meticulous you have to be, and how you should not think at, at any point that you are actually already done. So Hofstadter's law is actually a recurrent law. Uh, you know, Douglas Hofstadter always had uh, a fond, uh, fond thing for recurrence. Uh, and it goes thus. Um, a program um, is never done, even when you when you take into account Hofstadter's law and your expectations about when the program will be done. So that kind of uh, tells you that okay. So if if you think you're going to be done, you're not going to be done yet. So maybe I could paraphrase that into you know a law about uh, neuronal modeling and modeling of the brain, which is that even though we think we, we we'd be done with our models today. Because, for instance, we had causality from top-down models, we're not nearly done yet because there's always a higher level and also a higher level of abstraction and a lower level of biophysical detail that we can put into our models and learn to understand more. So we're never done with modeling the brain, even if you take into account Hofstadter's law for the brain, let's call it that. I couldn't honestly take credit for that myself. Okay, so, so Ehlers' law would be something like the analysis of affective connectivity is never done. Could always be better, yes. Hmm? Yeah. Very good. So then, um, if I would go and visit you five years from now, and I say, look, Alert, in this podcast interview, you gave me this prediction, and now I want to know whether you were right or wrong. What's this one prediction you would really want to stick your neck out today so that I can check five years from now? Oh, that's a nice one, especially when you've got it on a record poll. Mm -hmm. Are you making? Are you doing stuff like this? Are you going to make a prediction that I can come and, and validate in five years in your lab? Sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. should, should, okay. You make yours. I'll make mine. Um, my prediction is that we'll have an integrated, uh, biophysically and anatomically constrained model of the core structures of the brain, including um, cerebellum, amygdala, hippocampus, thalamus, cortex, and and components of the basal ganglia. At which at which level of detail? Um, including a biophysical detail, so we have uh, there will be multi-compartmental models. We will have uh, anatomical detail of connectivity, and we will be able to account for all aspects of classical and operant conditioning with these models. All right, perfect. So now mine. My prediction would be that in five years, uh, we've been able to push fMRI, functional magnetic resonance imaging, especially at ultra high fields, seven Tesla and beyond to such a degree that we can validate models such as which you are talking about in your prediction at the level of cortical columnar structures and cortical layers, which is something that we can only dream about today, even with modern 3T machines. My prediction would be in five years we're going to be very close to that. And that is actually going to be the convincing reason why to use this type of data as your added constraints onto those bottom-up models. Great. Alan Rabrook, thank you very much. Pleasure. Absolute pleasure.